Welcome to The Whole Steward, the holistic approach to wealth from a Christian worldview. I'm your host, Andrew Stanton, and I'm glad you've joined. You live somewhere you call home, and someone owns the property on which you live. That may be you, or your family, your landlord, the bank, the government. Your portion is your equity, and if you hold equity in real property, or desire to do so, listen up. We'll discuss what's rarely mentioned about home equity today on The Whole Steward. This is episode number 24, and today we'll be discussing something that may or may not affect you depending on if you own real property or if you're thinking about doing so. You may be thinking about buying a primary residence. This applies to you. Or you may be a real estate investor. You may own additional properties on top of your primary residence. You may rent the property you own. And you may own properties out of state, for example. It very well could apply to you. And you should listen up because I will have some thoughts for you that I rarely hear anybody else talk about. In fact, I don't think I've ever heard anybody other than real estate investors talk about this. But I'm going to bring a perspective that you may find very fascinating. I know it was very eye-opening for me. And that is the topic of home equity. You're thinking about the equity that you own in a home which is the portion of the property that belongs to you. It's the current value of the property minus the money or the loan that you owe on the property. So when you buy a property, you could borrow money in the form of a mortgage. And so the bank kind of has some equity in the property and then you have equity in the property. Whatever your down payment is, that is your equity. But let's take a step back for a second and let's look at the history of mortgages. If you go back even into ancient civilization, there was the concept of the mortgage. Some people could put up a pledge or security in some way to obtain property. And if they were unable to perform or pay for the property, then the pledge or the security would be confiscated. In the U.S., mortgages haven't actually been around all that long. The banks weren't even the ones who started the concept. It was insurance companies. And the insurance companies basically loaned money against a property. And it was kind of in the hopes that if the person were to default or they were unable to keep up with the payments for some reason, the company would then confiscate the property or gain the ownership of the property. In the 1930s, there was only about 40% of households who owned their houses. And so it was really a renter nation. The mortgages that were in effect up until the 1930s were very different than what we have today. They were often at most, a 50% loan-to-value. So you had to put a 50% down payment uh, at a minimum. And the terms were very different. They were usually three- to five-year terms, often interest-only, and then with a balloon payment at the end. So after 
three to five years, you paid interest on the loan for that amount of time, and then at the end, you owed the entire amount of the loan back. And a common loan was known as the 80% loan. That is not 80% loan to value. It's 80% down. And then you would borrow 20% of the property value uh, in the form of a mortgage. Now, if for any reason you couldn't pay at all or roll that loan into a new mortgage, you would lose your home and all your equity. So it was very different than today because those balloon payments often were a burden on people especially during the Great Depression. So in the Great Depression, when property values were declining and mortgages were coming due, people were losing their homes because they couldn't pay their mortgages. They couldn't pay them off. This led to the greatest generation having a big aversion to the mortgage. For example, my grandparents they paid their house off, they paid it completely off, and they lived in it for decades, completely paid off, no loan whatsoever. It led to that greatest generation being averse to the mortgage. And you remember, it was kind of a celebration when you paid your mortgage off, when you finally had your house paid off, they would have what was called a mortgage party. You could have all your friends over, have a barbecue, and celebrate the fact that you had paid your house off. There was a real fear of repossession back then. However, in 1934, the FHA, which is the Federal Housing Administration, was formed, and it was to help people with home ownership to purchase and or stay in their homes. The FHA set up programs that offered smaller down payments, uh, for example, 80% loan to value or 90 or even today it's 97.5% loan to value. They also expanded the terms to 15 years or 30 years or even now 40 years. Yeah, you can get a 40-year mortgage if you didn't realize that. They also invented the amortization of the loan, allowing the borrower to pay down the principal over time. So instead of just paying interest only and then having a balloon payment at the end, you could amortize the loan over the period of the loan. And now you would be paying down the principal along with the interest payments that you're making. Of course, when the Federal Housing Administration did this, the commercial banks were forced to follow suit. And so now we have the mortgage industry as we know it today. It's very highly regulated. It's also um, very tightly controlled in terms of qualification for a mortgage. If you want to get a mortgage, you have to prove uh, income and stability in your balance sheet. So we're in a very different place today. Also, the banks cannot just call the mortgage at any time. Uh, a 30-year fixed rate mortgage is 30 years. There's really no reason 
that the bank is going to come and say, all of a sudden, hey, I want you to pay up now. This, of course, is with the conventional loan type. And so, as you can see, because of the history of mortgages, some people may have an aversion to them, but they're very different than they were even just a hundred years ago. So is it better to put more down on a property and pay it off as quick as possible? With mortgages the way they are today, we're gonna take a deep dive on is more equity better next on The Whole Steward. Hey there, it's Andrew. I pour a lot into The Whole Steward, and I'm so humbled you're listening. Did you know I regularly post new articles to our website? I also send the Holistic Approach to Wealth newsletter once a week, to which you can subscribe at thewholesteward.com newsletter. If you're enjoying what you're hearing on the show, would you share it with a friend or leave us a review? I'd really appreciate it. Oh, and thanks for listening. Welcome back. Thanks for sticking with me. Now, this is where we really need to put our thinking cap on. Just like we did in the rent versus own that we saw in episode 22, this is going to kind of expand on that a little bit more and find out, okay, why is that the case? Some of the underlying uh, intrinsic nature of what we're doing is the reason why the rent to own worked out the way it did. So we're going to expand on that and take a look at equity. Now, there are advantages to having equity in property. Having equity in property is better than not owning the property at all. It also adds to your net worth or your balance sheet. It makes your balance sheet stronger the more equity you have. But I'm going to make a statement right now about equity that you may not have heard before and you may have a hard time wrapping your mind around it and the statement is this your equity is unsafe illiquid and its rate of return is always zero now before you say up oh, this guy's crazy and you hit the pause or the off button or you close this podcast, listen and hear me out. Your equity is unsafe, illiquid, and its rate of return is always zero. So what do I mean by that? Well, I'm going to take each of those three things one at a time, and we're going to look at them a little closer. How is it that your equity is unsafe? What do I mean by that? Your equity is unsafe. Well, think about this. Number one, if you have equity in a property and the value of the property goes down, who loses their equity first? Let's say you have a mortgage on the property. You have a loan on the property. You owe $80,000 on a loan that you have on a property that's worth $100,000. Does the bank lose their equity first or you? If the value goes down, let's say the property loses 10% value. So now it's worth 90,000. The bank still wants you to pay them 80K, 
So it was your equity. You had 20K in equity, and now you lost half of your equity. You literally lost half of your equity with a 10% decrease in the property value. So your equity is on the chopping block first. The bank will be the last ones to lose their equity. If the property goes down to 80,000, you've lost all of your equity. The bank still has lost none. Only if the property then goes to 70K, now the bank has lost 10K of their equity. But they were the last ones to lose. So you see, number one, you're the first person to lose equity if the property goes down in value. Number two, if for whatever reason you were unable to pay your mortgage and the bank forecloses on you, no matter how much equity you have, it now belongs to the bank. If they repossess the property, all of your equity goes to the bank. So if you bought a 100K property, you had 80K in a loan, and you put 20K down, let's say after 15 years of paying on the mortgage, you paid the loan down to 60K, for example, now, theoretically, you have 40K plus whatever appreciation. If you want to preserve your equity and you fall on hard times, you're going to have to short sell your home uh, at a huge discount to try to preserve the equity that you have because the bank's going to foreclose on you and you would forfeit all of the equity to the bank because now the bank's going to own the property outright. You don't get any of that equity back. Even if you short sell, you're going to, it's kind of like a fire sale. You, you have to sell it under distress. You're going to sell it for less. So your equity in that way is unsafe because the bank will repossess the entire amount if they have to foreclose. Number three, if you fall on hard times, let's say, and you get behind on your mortgage payments, you know, the bank is going to foreclose on the person who has the most equity in their property. Now, hear me out on this. The bank has an employee somewhere sitting in a room that their job is to, to decide out of all the delinquent loans, who are we going to foreclose on first? They have Joe, Jane, and Bob. Joe owes 80000 on his 100K house. Jane owes sixty k on her 100K house. And Bob only owes twenty k. He's been paying his mortgage for a long time, and now he only owes twenty k. The bank says, okay, who owes me the most money? Those are the people I'm going to try to help. Hey... Do you need a deferment? Do you need to renegotiate the terms? How can I help you pay your mortgage? Because you owe me a lot of money and I'm trying to get it back. It's just a numbers game to them where they look at Bob and he only owes 20K. Well, unfortunately, he's the one they're going to foreclose on. And it doesn't seem right, but it's the way it is because the bank is trying to protect their interests. They are protecting their bottom line and their shareholders. 
So they are going to foreclose on the person who owes them the least amount of money, and they are going to work with and renegotiate the terms with the person who owes them the most money. Number four, your equity is unsafe because if you get sued for whatever reason, the first thing the lawyer is going to do is do an asset check. And if you have a large equity stake in your property, they're going to go after it. However, if you have a small equity stake and the bank has a large equity stake, they're likely not going to go after it, actually, because banks have whole departments that deal with this, uh, legal departments that deal with protecting the interests of the bank. And if they have a large equity position in a property, they're going to work hard to protect that interest. And the lawyer is going to be up against the bank's legal team. But for you, if they see that you have a lot of equity in the property, you're much easier to go after because for you, it's very difficult and expensive to try to defend yourself and your equity. So your equity is exposed to lawsuits. The more you have, the more likely you are to have a lawyer go after it. Number five, even if you own your home outright, let's say with 100% equity, let me ask you this. Do you really own your home? You might say, well, yeah, Andrew, I own my home. I have it paid off. Okay, do you own your home really? Let me challenge you. If you stopped paying your taxes, how long would you still own your home? See, it's never fully yours, fully free and clear. You still have to pay your taxes. So there's an expense that's a permanent expense attached to that property that reminds you every time if you don't pay that expense, you're going to have a tax lien put on your home. And now the government will be after your property. And tax liens, the sale uh, of tax liens is a huge business. Number six, your equity is not safe because it's exposed to elemental risks. It's exposed to the elements. So for example, if your property burns down, you're going to lose a lot of equity. I mean, your, your burnt down house is not going to be worth as much as it was before. And if you held that inequity, now it's all gone. That's why you will want to carry insurance on your property. It's called property insurance. And it's another monthly expense. Why? To simply protect your equity. And that's why the bank requires you to have insurance if you're going to get a loan. Why? Because they're trying to protect their equity, right? So those are six ways that your equity is unsafe. Now, there are ways to make it more safe. For example, if you put it in a, a, a trust uh, or you have you know, good insurance and you pay your taxes, all, there, there are ways to protect your equity. But one way to protect your equity is to have very little of it in a property that you own. Now, the second thing I said was that equity is illiquid. Well, what do I mean by that? 
there are really only a few ways that you can get your equity back into liquid funds. Uh, some of them are you can sell your property or you can refinance or you can get a home equity line of credit. or You could do a reverse mortgage. All of these things, though, I argue, are very difficult. And that's what makes it illiquid. Think about it. Selling a house is a huge, expensive ordeal. Uh, refinancing a house is miserable because you have to prove to the bank that you're worthy. And depending on your situation, even though you have a lot of equity, you might not be able to access it. The banker might say, well, you know what? You don't have any income, so I'm not going to loan you any of that money. And so you can't get that money unless you sell the property. Now, when it comes to paying a mortgage, what is more important, equity or liquidity? Liquidity are funds that you have that are easily transferable into some other form of capital. Uh, for example, dollars in the bank would be considered liquid. You can move those very quickly. Uh, but your equity is not liquid. So when it comes to paying a mortgage, which one is more important, equity or liquidity? Well, I'm going to argue liquidity. And here's why. If you, for whatever reason, end up short on cash and you have a mortgage payment due, it doesn't matter how much equity you have. Absolutely irrelevant. All that matters is that you have to make that monthly payment. And if you don't have that payment available, that's a problem. The equity does nothing for you. Whether you have 20% equity, 80% equity, if you have to make that payment, you need liquid funds available. And it has to be other funds. right? Unless you have, for example, a HELOC. I know there's ways that you ha can have uh, a line of credit against your property. And certainly you could use those. With, those are a little bit more liquid funds. That's assuming that the HELOC stays in place. But at a very basic level, if you have a traditional mortgage and you have mortgage payments due every month, liquidity, not equity, is what you want. Let's look at an example. Let's say you had a 100K home and you had put 50% down. Right? You wanted a lot of equity. But now you're paycheck to paycheck for making the payments. And the risk is that if something comes up, you won't be able to make the payments. If instead you had put only 20% down rather than 50%, now you would have 30K in liquid funds set aside. And yes, your payment is a little bit higher. You have a higher interest payment, but the liquid funds are a buffer. If you fall on hard times and you're unable to make the payment, you can float for a long time on the liquid funds that you have to make that payment. So it actually de-risks the ability to pay that mortgage off. Now, remember, as we've learned before, when there's inflation, the value of both savings accounts and debts are going down. So 
your debt or your mortgage over time is going down, even though you borrowed more in this example, over time it will get easier to pay back. So that's why I say liquidity, not equity, is key for paying your mortgage. And your equity is illiquid. Now, the last thing I said that might have made you pause and think is its rate of return is always zero. What do I mean by that? You say, wait, hold on, Andrew. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Even if I own my house outright, prices are going up, I'm making a rate of return. But think about this carefully. If you have equity in a home, how much interest are you earning from that equity? You may be saving interest while living in the home because you get to live in the home without paying a mortgage payment, and so now you're not paying the interest expense. But this is really just a savings of the interest. You're not actually earning any interest on the equity. You're just saving one of the expenses that you would have had you borrowed the money rather than holding it in equity. Now you might say, well, the price is going up and that is a return on investment. Let's say you put 100K cash for this $100,000 home. Now the price goes up 5%. And you say, well, look, I made a 5% return. Yes, that is true. That is very true. But that 5K from the 5% increase on the property value happened regardless of how much equity you had in the property. I don't care if you had 80% equity, 20% equity, or 100% equity. The price went up by $5,000. And that $5,000 is 5,000 new dollars of equity that you have, regardless of how much equity you had before. So you need to distinguish the difference between return on equity and a return from equity. Are you making any return from holding equity? Well, no, you're not, because the return is happening regardless of how much equity you have. Now, back to the interest rate. If you do hold less equity in a property and you borrow more money against the property, you must look at the opportunity cost for holding the equity in the property. How much equity should you hold in a property? Should you hold 20%, 35 35%, 80%, 100%? Well, it depends on your investor profile, depends on where you are in life and what your priorities are. But if your priority is to optimize the use of the dollars that you hold on your balance sheet, then holding more equity in a property actually comes with an opportunity cost. And what do I mean by that? Well, let's say the interest rate is 7%. So you could put 20% down and borrow 80% of the value at 7% interest. Now, 
you saved 80K because otherwise you would have had to put 100K down and you only put 20K. You saved 80K that you have to do something else with. Now, you're paying 7% on that 80K. But if you know how to earn 10%, say, in another investment, then you're going to create a 3% positive arbitrage. And if you choose not to do that, then what we call that is a 3% opportunity cost. If you put the money directly in equity and you don't borrow any money against the property, but you would know how to earn a 10% return, then your opportunity cost is 3%. So, to sum it up, your equity is unsafe, it's illiquid, and its rate of return is always zero. Now, I know there's a lot of various things, as I said before, that you can do to protect your equity, um, that you can do to keep it more liquid, and there is a return on equity, just no return from equity. So you have to look at all these things as a whole and see what is your investor profile. Where do your risks and rewards lie? But I hope this has given you just a little bit of food for thought on how to structure your deals. Do you put more or less equity? You can, once you build up a certain amount of equity, you can refinance and then own two properties. Let's say you put 20k down on a property and after 5 years the equity that you have in the property is up to 40k. Well now you have enough for two down payments on two houses for which you could own 20% equity in each house as opposed to 40% equity on one house. And because we've studied and taken a closer look at equity, you may decide that it's better to have less equity in each property than more. Be careful to remember that the when it comes to property investing, it is the income of the property that covers the mortgage expense. So you're not actually paying that expense. Your tenant is. Um, you have other expenses that are required to protect your equity, and those are your taxes and your insurance. As well, you need to upkeep your property and keep it in good repair. Otherwise, your equity will also be degraded. And lastly, you can ask the question, what else could I have done with those same dollars? Is there something better I could have done? And if I don't do it, what is the opportunity cost? Now, I would love to get into this more later, but let me just briefly describe what borrowing money in terms of a property investment entails. It's really a matter of using leverage. So let's use that 100K example again. And I put 20% down. I borrow 80%. That's considered 5 to 1 leverage. I hold one-fifth of the equity, but I control 100% of the asset. So, the leverage amplifies your gains and your losses. 
For example, if I put 20K down on a 100K property and the property appreciates by 5%, for example, then my gain is $5,000. Now, what is the return on the equity? Well, the equity was 20K, the gain was 5K, so my return is 25%. What does that come out to? It's exactly five times the actual asset gain, which was 5%. So I'm using five to one leverage, so I'm getting five to one the return on the equity. 20K, 5K increase, that's a 25% gain. Conversely, if the equity or the property price were to go down in value, as we said today, the equity that belongs to you is the first to go, and it goes much quicker, exactly at a 5 to 1 leverage. So basically, leverage amplifies your gains and your losses. Now, in the stock market, and even in the foreign exchange market, and probably others, you can use leverage as well. Real estate just makes it very easy and common to use leverage. In fact, most people will buy their properties on leverage. They'll borrow money. Here are some statistics about mortgages in 2023. This is from LendingTree.com. Americans owe just shy of $12 trillion, and that's spread across 83.4 million mortgages. Additionally, Americans owe $336 billion on home equity lines of credit, or HELOCs. In 2022, the average weekly interest rate was about 5.34%, and now it's up in the sevens. But Americans originated in 2022 $2.75 trillion in new mortgage debt. At the end of the third quarter of 2022, American households held 70.4% of their property value. So that comes out to $29.5 trillion in real estate equity. That's 78.4% more than the $16.54 trillion held in the third quarter of 2017. So from 2017 to 2022, the equity that Americans own went from 16.54 to $29.5 trillion. And due to rising home prices, homeowners are gaining massive amounts of equity. This, by the way, is one of the main reasons why we likely will not see a large nationwide housing crash. Of the people who have mortgages right now, I think it's about 25% of them have an interest rate below 3%. And another large ma uh, majority have an interest rate below 4%, and even more have an interest rate below 
all of the mortgages that I have are below 5% right now. Now, we're looking to purchase new property. The interest rate is not the only thing that we look at. Why? Because it's only one expense out of all the expenses that we look at. Uh, It is part of the equation, but it doesn't necessarily make or break a deal. So anyways, people will always work to protect their equity, and that's why I think a housing crash is uh, quite unlikely that we would have to have a major big uh, black swan event that causes uh, a major upheaval. But what's more likely to happen in that scenario even is a lot more inflation rather than deflation. Uh, We've seen the central banks messing with interest rates constantly. And every time a black swan event kind of comes along, they immediately start fiddling with the economy. And that causes usually inflation. There's There's a dip, but then... The cash starts flowing in and asset prices, like it or not, go up in value because the people in charge have an incentive for asset prices to go up. And they have an incentive for consumer prices to stay low. Why? Because they don't want consumers to be mad, but they tend to own a lot of assets. The people in charge own assets. They own real estate, stocks, etc. So just watch out for for that. Don't necessarily expect this huge crash in equity, but remember your equity is nonetheless unsafe, illiquid, and its rate of return is always zero. Remember, keep a strong balance sheet because the debtor a slave to the lender, although, as we've discussed before, nowadays it's almost like the lender is slave to the debtor uh, because of moratoriums and inflation and all these different things. But it is a biblical principle that if you can't afford something, don't buy it. But let me just add this. When it comes to mortgages, when the Bible says, Owe no man anything but to love one another, If you have a mortgage on a property, do you owe someone? Well, yes, you have an outstanding balance on a mortgage. But really what you owe them is the terms of repayment. So you really owe them the mortgage payment every month. And once you pay that, then you owe no man anything anymore. Until the next month, yeah, okay, now you owe it. But you have an income stream to pay that. And so you pay it, and now you don't owe any man anything anymore. Until the property is paid off after 30 years, you will control the entire asset. But maybe you want to be smarter about that and spread your equity over more properties if you know that you can leverage to make a better return. All of this is the precise reasons why those with a lot of money may not pay cash for their house. For example, I was talking to a friend and he was talking about uh, someone he knows that has millions of dollars. He could easily 
buy um, the house that he wanted, which was a $2 million house. He could have easily paid cash for it, but he didn't. He took out a mortgage. Why is that? Well, you can write the interest off on your taxes, so it's a tax-saving move. But he also talked about opportunity cost. If you have $10 million, you'd probably be scratching your head. Hey, is there something better I could do with this money rather than putting it in equity? That man understood that equity is unsafe, illiquid, and its rate of return is always zero. Well, thanks for listening. I hope this challenged our thinking. I'm certain to get some questions mailed in. If you disagree with me, email me, let me know, letters at thewholesteward.com. I would love to hear from you and challenge my thinking on this. Until next week, now that you know more, go out and grow more. All content on The Whole Steward is for informational purposes only and must not be considered personal, professional, tax, or legal advice. Please consult an appropriate professional for individualized advice. Though we do our best to bring you reliable information, we make no guarantee on its accuracy, so you must rely on your own due diligence to draw your own conclusions. The views expressed by guests on the show are their own and may not represent that of the host. Please visit our website for complete terms and conditions. Thanks for joining us today for the holistic approach to wealth from a Christian worldview. This show is brought to you by thewholesteward.com.